Welcome back to Cloud of Witnesses. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 27. Our witness today is Amy Carmichael, who ministered in India for most of her life. Unless otherwise noted, excerpts for today's episode will come from Elizabeth Elliot's book, A Chance to Die. This book was an invaluable resource. Highly recommend. Companion episodes to today's episodes are Episodes 10, 13, and 22. 10 discusses George Mueller, and 13 discusses Hudson Taylor. Both of these men greatly inspired Amy. Episode 22 is about Elizabeth Elliot, who found Amy to be an incredible inspiration. She described Amy as her role model and her first spiritual mother. She said that Amy showed her the shape of godliness. She also said that she saw that the chance to die, to be crucified with Christ, was not a morbid thing, but the very gateway to life. Wow. If you haven't had the chance to listen to any of those episodes, feel free to do so. I'll include the list in the show notes. As always, my prayer is that each episode will point you to the one who inspires every witness. If the Lord lays it on your heart to support Cloud of Witnesses, you can do so at www.enduringwitnesses.com. Thanks in advance for your support in this ministry. I also covet your prayers. I never want to get in the way of pointing you to Christ. Pray that my study, preparation, and delivery are used for His glory. He is so worth it, and His message is eternally life-changing. While preparing for this episode, a question developed in my mind that I just couldn't get away from. It was this. What is your carrot? You've seen the pictures from the old days when drivers would tie a carrot to the front of a wagon to get stubborn mules or horses to move. Eating the carrot was the singular focus of the animals. They would do exactly what was necessary to get that carrot. This image has been rolling around in my head for a month or so now. You've come to be very aware that the theme of Cloud of Witnesses is the believer's joyful and hopeful endurance. I really, really want each episode to be like a tool in your tool belt, cheering you on to keep going. With that imagery taken from Hebrews 12 of a runner and his or her race, I always want to remind you to keep running. What I'm concerned that I haven't highlighted enough is the proverbial carrot. For a believer, the carrot is not a what, it's a who. It's Jesus. But before we get into that, I want to explore the question of whether or not Jesus had a carrot. Please hear that in the utmost reverence. If you read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, you know what? Let me just do that for you again right now. Listen for the carrot. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you figure out the carrot that fueled Jesus' endurance? It was the joy that was set before him. Listen to part of a sermon Spurgeon preached on this very topic. His glorious motive. What was that which made Jesus speak like this, for the joy that was set before him? Beloved, What was the joy? Oh, tis a thought must melt a rock and make a heart of iron move, that the joy which was set before Jesus was principally joy of saving you and me. I know it was the joy of fulfilling His Father's will, of sitting down on His Father's throne, of being made perfect through suffering. But still I know that this is the grand, great motive of the Savior's suffering, the joy of saving us. Do you know what the joy is of doing good to others? If you do not, I pity you, for of all joys which God has left in this poor wilderness, this is one of the sweetest. This is the joy which Christ felt. It was the joy of feeding us with the bread of heaven, the joy of clothing poor naked sinners in his own righteousness, the joy of finding mansions in heaven for homeless souls, of delivering us from the prison of hell and giving us the eternal enjoyments of heaven. Picture yourself today going home. You have an enemy who all of his life has been your enemy. His father was your enemy, and he is your enemy too. There is never a day passes but you try to win his friendship, but he spits upon your kindness and curses your name. He does injury to your friends, and there is not a stone he leaves unturned to stir you up to anger. As you're going home today, you see a house on fire. The flames are raging and the smoke is ascending up in one black column to heaven. Crowds gather in the street, and you are told there is a man in the upper chamber who must be burnt to death. No one can save him. You say, why, that is my enemy's house, and you see him at the window. 
It is your own enemy, the very man. He is about to be burnt. Full of loving kindness, you say, I will save that man if I can. He sees you approach the house. He puts his head from the window and curses you. An everlasting blast upon you, he says. I would rather perish than that you should save me. Do you imagine yourself then dashing through the smoke and climbing the blazing staircase to save him? And can you conceive that when you get near him, he struggles with you and tries to roll you in the flames? Can you conceive your love to be so potent that you can perish in the flames rather than leave him to be burned? You say, I could not do it. It is above flesh and blood to do it. But Jesus did it. We hated him. We despised him. And when he came to save us, we rejected him. When his Holy Spirit comes into our hearts to strive with us, we resist him. But he will save us. Nay, he himself braved the fire that he might snatch us as brands from eternal burning. The joy of Jesus was the joy of saving sinners. The great motive then, with Christ, in enduring all this, was that he might save us. If that doesn't make you thankful for Jesus, I don't know what will. The point I'm trying to make is that if Christ himself had a motivation for endurance, how much more so do we need one? We can imitate our Savior's example of enduring for the joy that was set before him by keeping before us the exquisite joy of one day being with him for all eternity. And when we're with him, according to scripture, he will reward us with crowns that we can, in an incredible act of love and thankfulness, lay at his feet. I came across a message by David Jeremiah. In it, he outlined, as he called them, the five crown rewards in heaven. Just like the Olympiads of Greece ran for the prize of the crown of leaves, believers will be awarded crowns one day in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to very quickly walk you through what they're called in the related passages. I'll leave them in today's show notes so that you can follow up on them in your own time. The first crown is the victor's crown. 1 Corinthians 9 explains that there will be an imperishable crown for the one who exercises self-discipline for the purpose of pursuing things with the greatest eternal value. The second crown is the crown of rejoicing. According to 1 Thessalonians 2, this crown is given to the one who wins souls to Christ. The crown of righteousness is the third crown. Jeremiah explains from 2 Timothy 4 that this crown is for those who long for heaven, their true home, who long to see the face of their Savior when he comes for them in the clouds. He then goes on to explain the fourth crown, the crown of life. He cites James 1 and Revelation 2 in his explanation that this crown is for anyone who has suffered, endured, persevered, and encouraged others. They have triumphed over persecution, temptation, and even martyrdom. The last crown is the crown of glory. It will be given to those here on earth who have shepherded the flock of God's children, pointing them to the one who died for them. 1 Peter 5 makes it clear that Jesus is the chief shepherd. He is the example for them to follow. So which crown is your carrot? You can endure anything knowing that eternity is your end game. It's coming closer every day that you live. Don't you want to focus on eternal things? Aren't they the people around you? Isn't making disciples what we're called to do? Isn't loving your neighbor as yourself supposed to characterize your interactions with everyone? If you boil down life using these focused questions, all of the distractions become white noise. I want to encourage you to keep your eyes on the prize. Maybe you having cancer is about the medical professionals at your hospital needing to hear the gospel. Maybe the ridicule you are enduring is to help you understand your Savior, who was tortured and mocked for the redemption of your soul. Maybe the Lord moved you to a different place because there are people in your new location who need to hear about the one who left heaven to come to earth. If we put on our eternal glasses, everything comes into focus. All that to say, my precious brother or sister in Christ, endure. It's eternally worth it. You be the witness in someone else's life. A witness that says, Jesus is my hope and joy. One day I will be with him. But until that day, I'm going to win as many crowns as I can to lay at his nail-pierced feet. What a day that will be. So now you're probably asking, how does all of that tie in with Amy Carmichael? Well, out of all the witnesses I've learned about so far, I have never come across someone who seemed more consumed with these ideas than her. 
She lived and breathed discipleship. In fact, so much so that I wouldn't be surprised if she even literally thought about how she breathed. Seriously, she seemed to put every one of her actions through the filter of, will it reflect Christ? Will it help or hinder someone from pursuing a knowledge of God? Was she perfect? By no means. In fact, she was quite controversial, but honestly, that's why I've fallen in love with her. Would I have made some of the decisions she made in the way she made them? In some instances, I would say, absolutely not. But man, did she love the Lord. Man, did she want other people to love the Lord. It's really hard to argue with that. That being said, let me introduce you to Amy Carmichael, or as she was called by most people in her sphere, Amma. Born in Ireland on December 16, 1867, Amy Beatrice Carmichael was the first of David and Catherine Carmichael's seven children. As a child, she loved playing on the rocky beach, and she was super fascinated with nature. She was very observant and sympathetic. She could be naughty at times, but she responded very strongly when she was told about Calvary. Later in life, she described her growing up years like this. I don't think there could have been a happier child than I was. Even though there was no trace of sentimentality in her home, there was conviction, courage, toughness, ruggedness, no-nonsense principles of child-rearing, clear expectations for the children, trustworthy parents, clear rules for obedience, and five clear forms of punishment. The family prayed and read scripture a lot, which shaped Amy's thinking and every phrase she wrote. Her family was at church every time the doors were open. Her father took her and her siblings on walks, even on Sundays when it was prohibited by the Presbyterians in their area. The children had toys, books, cats, dogs, and ponies. They were also purposely surrounded by beauty. Science was demonstrated, and the kids didn't go to school in the early years. They were taught by governesses. In 1879, when Amy was 12, she was sent to Marlborough House, a Wesleyan Methodist boarding house in Harrogate, Yorkshire. She was terribly homesick, and she found all of her teachers except one to be very boring. But while she was there, she came to faith in Christ. Listen to her salvation story. It was near the end of her three years at Marlborough House that Amy experienced the one watered moment in an arid three years. The Children's Special Service Mission held meetings in Harrogate, at which one Edwin Aerosmith spoke. She had no recollection of his talk, but remembered singing the lovely children's hymn by Anna B. Warner, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In those quiet minutes, she understood what she had not understood before. There was something else to be done. All her life, she had known of Jesus' love. Her mother had often told her of it, sung to her about it, and Amy had, as it were, nestled in Jesus' arms as she had nestled in her mother's. She realized now, at the age of 15 or so, that she had not opened the door to him. She said, In his great mercy, the Good Shepherd answered the prayers of my mother and father and many other loving ones and drew me, even me, into his fold. For the sake of the family business, the family moved to Belfast. The kids were pulled out of the boarding school because of financial difficulties. Their father died of pneumonia when Amy was 19. This was after a devastating betrayal by his friend. Amy threw herself into serving others, becoming like a second mom to her brothers and sisters. One day, after she and her family crossed paths with an elderly poor woman, the Holy Spirit brought to her attention 1 Corinthians 3, 12-14. It greatly impacted Amy. I would even dare say that this is the first time the carrot was introduced to her thinking. The passage talks about how Jesus is the foundation of every eternal work. Verse 14 says, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. She slipped into her room alone when she got home and settled things with the Lord. The activities that followed her encounter included leading prayer meetings for schoolgirls, working at the YMCA, and having classes for the Shawleys, who were considered scandalous at the time because they were so poor that they couldn't afford hats. They had to cover their heads with shawls. Amy prayed hard for them the more she learned about them. By the time she was 21, the church where she served with the Shawleys numbered 500. One of the reasons it grew so large is because of how God used her love for the poor and outcast to show clear evidence of the compassion of the Lord. During the years after her encounter with the elderly woman, she began to grow in her desire to live a holy life. 
An example of this was when she was 19. Her mother declared the time of mourning for her father to be over. She said that it was time for Amy to buy some new clothes. Amy didn't want to because she wanted to live a life of complete and utter commitment to the Lord. Even though she had an incredible eye for fashion, she viewed focusing on it to be worldly. For his sake and for the sake of a true life of discipleship, she turned her eyes away from fashion, finery, and luxury of any sort. When Amy was 20, she heard Hudson Taylor say that every hour 4,000 people pass through the gates of death into the darkness beyond, saviorless, hopeless. Her response to this? She wrote, Does it not stir up our hearts to go forth and help them? Does it not make us long to leave our luxury, our exceeding abundant light, and go to them that sit in darkness? While attending the Belfast Conference, she met the chairman, Mr. Robert Wilson. He was not yet 60. This was a turning point in her life, as he would become a vital part of her life for decades, so much so that she affectionately nicknamed him D.O.M. What did that stand for? Dear Old Man. At age 22, she made the declaration that she would never marry. That remained true until her death. You will learn that she, like the Apostle Paul, had one singular focus, pouring her life out for the ministry. Not all are called to this, but she fulfilled her calling with every fiber of her being. In 1888, she attended the 14th Keswick Convention, which affected her for the rest of her life. Her friend Mr. Wilson was its co-founder. The emphasis was sanctity and holiness. Listen to an excerpt from one of the speakers at the convention. To be like Christ, to displace self from the inner throne and to enthrone Him, to make not the slightest compromise with the smallest sin, we aim at nothing less than to walk with God all day long, to abide every hour in Christ and He and His words in us, to love God with all the heart and our neighbors as ourselves, it is possible to cast every care on Him daily and to be at peace amidst pressure, to see the will of God in everything, to put away all bitterness and clamor and evil speaking daily, hourly. It is possible by unreserved resort to divine power under divine conditions to become strongest through and through at our weakest point. It's said that before the convention she had been pondering the agonizing question of the fate of those who had never heard of Jesus Christ. She could hear the cries of the heathen. She couldn't ignore them anymore. In 1889, she was asked to come to Manchester, England to start a work similar to The Welcome, which was the name of the church that had grown so rapidly due in part to her ministry with the Shawleys. Her mom was asked to be the superintendent for the women of a rescue home there. The place Amy and Mrs. Carmichael moved to was in a highly populated slum. The people were rough and drank a lot. Living in the slum made for good missionary training. Amy had to learn how to deal with gross, creepy crawlies. She also had to learn to do whatever was necessary at a moment's notice. Living without privacy and quiet and living in danger also sharpened her in ways that would prove invaluable on the mission field. In 1890, she moved to Broughton Grange, which was the home of Mr. Wilson, dear old man. He had asked Mrs. Carmichael if Amy could be his daughter of sorts. Wilson's sons didn't like her presence in their father's life. Even though this was painful, years later she regarded it as helpful preparation for her future ministry. Always mindful of specific dates in a way similar to how the Israelites built memorials in Old Testament times, Amy marked January 13, 1892 as the date of her greatest crisis. She knew without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord was calling her to go. Her heart was incredibly torn as to what it would do to her mother and to her fatheree, Mr. Wilson. She agonized how to tell them. In an incredible example of God's mercy and grace, both of them made it clear that they were willing to surrender her to the Lord's will. On January 16th, in firm, clear handwriting, Mrs. Carmichael wrote, My own precious child, he who hath led will lead all through the wilderness. He who hath fed will surely feed. He who hath heard thy cry will never close his ear. He who hath marked thy faintest sigh will not forget thy tear. He loveth always, faileth never, so rest on him today, forever. Yes, dearest Amy, he has lent you to me all these years. He only knows what a strength, comfort, and joy you have been to me. In sorrow he made you my staff and solace, in loneliness my more than child companion, and in gladness my bright and merry-hearted sympathizer, 
So, darling, when he asks you now to go away from within my reach, can I say nay? No. No, Amy. He is yours. You are his, to take you where he pleases and to use you as he pleases. I can trust you to him, and I do. All day he has helped me, and my heart unfailingly says, Go ye. She wrote more of the sufficient grace she could count on, of the everlasting love, of the smallness of life, of her willingness to give her child into the loving arms of God. As for Mr. Wilson, God has his happiness in his keeping. Mr. Wilson wrote to comfort Mrs. Carmichael in the giving up of her dear child for the Lord's work amongst the heathen. I know something of what it must cost you. It hardly seems a case for anything but bowing the head in thankful acquiescence when the Lord speaks thus to one so dear. The future seems changed to me. She has been and is more than I can tell you to me, but not too sweet or too loving to present to him who gave himself for us. The Wilson sons were not pleased with Amy's desire to leave. They considered it to be heartless because her father had come to need and love her so much. Even her own sisters and leaders of the convention spoke poorly of her desire to go to a foreign land. Through all this, she came to understand what it meant to bear shame for the cause of Christ. She grew to connect with the passage that declared that we are dead to self and alive to God. She said, this is what those dark scripture passages meant, dead to all one's natural earthly plans and hopes, dead to all voices, however dear, which would deafen our ear to his. Looking ahead, the fall of 1892, when she would be 25 years old, seemed like the right time to leave. She didn't know where she was going to go, but she knew that the Great Shepherd would make it clear. Ceylon, which is modern-day Sri Lanka, was constantly on her mind, but it quickly left her mind and China came to the forefront because of the impact Hudson Taylor had on her. She met a missionary named Mrs. Stewart, who served in Fukien, China. This convinced her that she should go to Fukien in the fall. Before that, on July 16th, Amy found out that Mrs. Stewart could not return. Amy accepted it as part of the master plan. Little did she know that the Stewarts and several single women missionaries would be murdered three years later. Five years earlier, 30 young people had volunteered for missionary service, and the next year someone sent a 10-pound note to the chairman as the nucleus of a fund for sending out a Keswick missionary. It was in 1892 that the first one was chosen to be sent and supported by that fund. It was Amy Beatrice Carmichael. Sometime in August, Amy decided that she would offer herself to Hudson Taylor's China Inland Mission. Sadly but sovereignly, the mission doctor refused to let her go. Dear old man was thrilled. Amy's response? Doctor's verdicts notwithstanding, she knew she had to go. Less than a year later, she became convinced that Japan was where she needed to go. Because she was burdened only in thought to go to Japan, she endured many pitfalls over the next year or two. Dear old man communicated with Barclay Buxton, a missionary with the Church Missionary Society, about Amy's strange feeling. Buxton believed she should head for Japan at the earliest possible moment. A party of the China Inland Mission women was to sail on March 3rd for Shanghai. Why not go with them? Buxton could send his reply there. Amy confidently booked a passage on the Valletta. Again, she and dear old man were heartbroken. The parting of the Valletta was agonizing and long. The loved ones there to see the group of four women off, saying, Crown him with many crowns and like a river glorious, over and over as the ship sailed away for an hour. She tried to figure out what she would do during the weeks between England and Colombo, Sri Lanka. She thought about games, but decided against it, since she was now a missionary. She then became burdened to share the gospel with the sailors and passengers. The captain became a believer and asked her to post a verse so that everyone could know that he was now saved. She struggled with seasickness, and she also grew burdened for, as she described it, darkest Africa as they sailed by it. She begged the passengers not to let the call go unanswered. She also grew burdened for the Arabs. On the next ship, they were greeted by a cabin already occupied by rats and cockroaches. She arrived safely in Shanghai on April 14th. It had taken a little over a month. After being there for a bit, she was put on board the SS Yokohama Maru, bound for Shimonoseki. The ship was caught in the tail end of a typhoon. 
The captain put her into a madly tossing steam tug full of very seasick Japanese. Finally, everybody tumbled out together onto the shore. Amy was surrounded by a crowd of shouting people. She did her best to explain her predicament. The crowd was friendly. It was certainly interested. It was, in fact, transfixed at the sight, but it was helpless. As she told the story later, she said she laughed till she was positively aching at the absurdity of the whole affair. A foreign port, nobody to meet her, not a word of any language she could understand. The girl from the Irish village on the North Sea, standing in the pouring rain beside her pile of luggage on the shore of Japan, laughing. All this was part of the going forth into a land I knew not, and everything was just right. And if things went wrong, it was so much the more fun. I knew they would come right in the end, and they always did. So with the charming lightheartedness of faith, she only wondered, what next? There was a sudden rush of Japanese from all quarters. They carried my boxes and me off to a hotel, made of paper as it seemed to me. And I sat down tranquilly on the mat, and I waited to see what the angels would do. They were on the job. Somebody beckoned and she followed. A rickshaw was waiting, in she got, and off she went into the unknown again. It seems unbelievable, but it felt quite natural to me. The rickshaw bounced through many streets and stopped at a house where a white man appeared. He turned out to be an American trader, thoroughly stunned to find this cheerful, diminutive foreigner at his door. He was able to direct her to the home of missionaries, an American girl and an old lady who had been expecting not Amy, but the missionary who was to have met her, who had been delayed because of the storm. Perfect saints they were, and that evening I was safe with them. During the few days' wait for the lady who was to meet her, Amy walked one day along the seashore, talking with one of the Shimonoseki missionaries. A casual remark was dropped, which elicited an astonished question from Amy. "'You don't mean to say,' the missionary replied, "'you think all missionaries love one another?' Precisely what she had thought. How could it be otherwise? "'No faintest foreshadowing of the purposes of God was mine that morning,' she wrote. "'But I remember the thoughts that rushed through me then. "'What of see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently? "'Was such a life of love lived nowhere?' It was a gray day with a gray sea, a gray drizzle and gray thoughts, but it spurred her to prayer, to an earnest beseeching that the Lord would enable her to love as he commanded us to love. She arrived in Matsuye on May 1st, 1893. Reverend Barclay Buxton lived there. He had brought with him many conveniences of English society. For her first few months there, Amy lived with his family, which included a governess for their three small sons. She had a lovely room, which included a view of the mountains. The church held no air of trying to be made English. Amy willingly attended a church for the first time, wearing no hat or shoes. Under inspiration of Hudson Taylor, she wore standard Japanese attire, a kimono. She had God is love embroidered on her kimono. Not quite ready to give up her stockings, she kept wearing them. She recalls a time where she was very close to leading a Japanese woman to the Lord, her gloves became a distraction to the woman. It grieved her. She never wore them again. Because Amy didn't know the language, she felt helpless. A girl named Misaki-san became her mouth, her travel companion, and her teacher. She was able to share the gospel through Misaki-san. Difficulties were very common for her, and she viewed them as training and discipleship. In a letter that she wrote, she confessed that being a missionary didn't mean that she had burst the bonds of outer sin and hatched herself a cherubim. Her days were filled with reading the Bible, praying, trying to learn Japanese, and sharing the gospel. She pushed herself very hard. Learning the language was very discouraging to her. She couldn't seem to get it. Even so, she proved to be quite the influential speaker. Sometimes she would walk by a home and be incredibly compelled by the Spirit to share the gospel with them. What she said was small and meager, but she prayed that somehow God may use it to bring glory to His dear name. As she had done in Belfast and Manchester, she tried to find factory girls to minister to. It was not done without persecution, though. Jeering boys would throw stones at her. She did it anyway. Almost 80 girls came to the meetings. She was moved to tears as it reminded her of the girls that came to the welcome. She constantly strived to have a singularity of focus, the glory of God. 
This striving included eliminating anything that would distract or deceive or tempt others to seek anything but the Lord Jesus himself. Why waste precious time and painful effort on lesser things? She began afternoon Bible classes for the boys. She also desired very deeply to live the life of the Japanese. Over and over, well-meaning friends grieved her by how strongly they disagreed with that desire. Her thoughts on it all? I don't wonder apostolic miracles have died. Apostolic living certainly has. Satan is so much more in earnest than we are. He buys up the opportunity while we're wondering how much it will cost. Believers' prayers were invaluable to her. There are story after story of how the Lord directly answered prayer while she ministered in Japan. Her health struggled while she was there. The Japanese sun caused her great trouble at times, which resulted in her getting overheated. She also struggled with neuralgia. Not eating enough protein caused her trouble too. The doctor diagnosed her with Japanese head. No one knew exactly what it was, but Amy was forced to take a long rest. It greatly interrupted her plans, but she yielded to the many demands for her to rest anyway. Sadly, she had to leave Japan, which was excruciating for her because the Japanese were so kind. She was headed to Shanghai. The voyage was very difficult. Much to her chagrin, she sat in first class. She shared the gospel while on board and arrived in Shanghai on July 10th. The China Inland Mission welcomed her and gave her a room. While there, her brain oppression lessened. After a week, she felt refreshed and asked God what was next. Go to Salon seemed to be his answer. People were horrified at the idea. She caught a chill in Hong Kong and became very ill with a fever. Despite all of this, she ignored the doubters. What comforted her? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Amy eventually approached by ship the dock of Colombo. She was small, tired, tortured with fear, weak, utterly unfit for the great dim unknown coming now so close to her. She read the verse, The joy of the Lord is my strength. Her attitude changed. She decided she would trust and not be afraid. She was immediately embraced by those at the mission cottage. She still felt helpless, trustless, wondered why she had come, and longed for solitude and quiet. The Lord was gracious to Amy, because even though the dear old man made it clear that he was not on board with her decision to go to China, three single female missionaries let her know that they viewed her as a direct answer to prayer. Trying to make very clear her intentions, she moved into their thatch-roofed hut. She described the floor as being made of mud and horror. She felt constantly watched, but she was able to find beauty in her surroundings, especially the birds. Ignoring her need to rest and recover, she dove directly into meetings. She found that the children were most receptive to the gospel. She was quite stern with little ones who were naughty. She found heathenism in all its forms appalling. Through the moonless dark we can see the flare of torches, the glimmer of lamps, the flicker of tapers. The woman there was ill. They had a devil dance over her. Now she was recovered, and they were paying the vow to the demon who had withdrawn as requested. One man is playing a sort of long-shaped tom-tom hung round his neck. Two more are dancing up and down and round and round on a marked circle, sacred to the presiding spirit. Two or three boys are arranged in corners to yell at given periods. On the ground lies the woman. Behind the performers, three altars stand, decked with creamy water lilies, lit with tapers floating in split coconuts, and on each there is rice in little piles, the few coins and sprays of the exquisite areca flower. All around there are people, men and women and boys. They will go on all night. In the early morning, the dances will vary. They will sing something different, too. At present, it is a continuous drum thump, bangle jingle, weird cry, and monotonous chant. They are propitiating the demon and at the same time trying to frighten him away. Doctrines of demons are no myth here. I turn to my Bible. Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid or dismayed. For the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him. 
With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the word of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And so I think may we. On November 27, 1894, she learned that dear old man had a stroke. She immediately went back to London where she stayed for 10 months. Dear old man loved having her back again. He made a good recovery, but knew that he would have to let her go again. The doctors told her not to return to the tropics. It didn't deter her in any way. Her friend wrote to her in the spring recommending she come to India because the climate was healthy and delightful. She was concerned that that meant it would be too easy, but she decided to go anyway because so many of the people who loved her believed that it would work well because of her health issues. After going through the proper hoops, she was approved. In her farewell address, she spoke powerfully and moved people greatly by saying, among other things, nothing is too precious for Jesus. Saying goodbye to her father E was heart-wrenching all over again. She comforted herself by the thought of being with him again one day in the father's country. She sailed on October 11th. Her heart was still especially torn about not returning to Japan and never yet going to China. Amy arrived in Bangalore with dengue fever, a malady characterized with pain in limbs and head so extreme that its nickname is breakbone fever. She couldn't write or even think, but with excellent care from the English mission doctor and nurses, she recovered. She became the hospital evangelist. She loved it. She worked with a female doctor and Claire. They also lived together. Amy longed to understand the people better she knew that learning the language would be the key to unlock that door. The Lord blessed her with an Indian Christian woman named Jaya, a name that meant victory. Amy said of her, so dear and loving with me, calls me sister, helps me with Tamil and interprets for me in the wards. True to form, Amy kept a rigorous schedule that included language lessons, prayers at the hospital, studying, exercising, pony writing, letter writing, housekeeping, and managing her accounts. Again, the local language was very difficult for her to learn. She did make progress though, which was more than could be said of her ability to speak Japanese. The caste system made church work incredibly complicated and she struggled to connect with the missionaries. The times of getting together with them to fellowship felt like, according to her, making daisy chains while people were plunging blindly over a precipice. The dress she wore as compared to the Indian saris proved to be quite a distraction, even potentially dangerous. She wanted to wear Indian attire, but it just wasn't done. Also, while traveling, she chose to ride a pony, unlike the British residents who rode in the sedan chairs, which required 36 locals. She also broke social norms by taking her Indian helper, whom she refused to be separated from. Heartbroken she was exposed to the barbaric custom of burning the dead. Amy spent time with the missionary to Muslims. She took Amy to visit another group of Aborigines called the Todas. They discussed the desperate need for workers. Shortly after this, she met another missionary named Thomas Walker. She could have no idea of how her life would become linked to him and his family. Even though Amy wanted so desperately to live alone somewhere with the Indians, they invited her to come to Tinevili to learn Tamil. She was burdened the entire trip by what she saw. There were nearly 3,000 Hindu temples, but the gospel had come to this area in many ways tracing back all the way to possibly the Apostle Thomas. In the early 18th century, a group of Northern European men translated the New Testament into Tamil, setting up printing presses, began turning out avalanches of Christian literature, and established prayer schoolhouses. Despite the positive effects Christianity had on the Indian caste culture and Hinduism, there was quite a backlash against Christians, which included things like believers being driven from their homes, being put in stocks, being exposed for up to two weeks to scorching sun and chilling dew. They were declared disloyal to the company's Raj. Walker was very encouraged by the gifts and heart of discipleship that he saw in Amy. He wanted to begin itinerant work in the villages and asked Amy to pray about joining him and to potentially start a ministry with the women. She was very encouraged by this, prayed, and told him yes. With no interpreter, her ministry begun. 
She told young boys the story of Solomon. She discovered a quote-unquote Christian home that had no Bible, an entire quote-unquote Christian congregation that hardly a converted soul. She felt pitiful, purposeful love. A few months later, she contracted a fever that put her out of commission for two months. The walkers proved to be true friends to her, more like a brother and sister. Eventually, her language skills improved so much that she was able to understand one of Walker's sermons. Her ministry with children and women continued. She was encouraged by reading the letters of Henry Martin, earlier missionary to India, who wrote, I have rightfully no other business each day but to do God's work as a servant, constantly regarding His pleasure. May I have grace to live above every human motive, simply with God and to God. In 1898, she passed her Tamil exam, despite her battle with neuralgia. Because of nominal Christianity and the caste system, winning souls for Christ was incredibly difficult. Because of this, her thought on half-hearted missionaries was this, Don't come if you haven't made up your mind to live for one thing, the winning of souls. Amy's beloved helper left with no explanation. But a new helper came, a Christian named Pandamal, which means gold. She was a 23-year-old widow who was turned out by her family. Listen to her response. I think God wants to make me pure gold, she said, so he is burning out the dross, teaching me the meaning of the fire, the burnt offering, the death of the self part of me. An itinerant band developed which was named Starry Cluster. It included Pandamal, Pearl, Blessing, and Marial. They made a flag that represented the wordless book. Amy and Blessing had an encounter with a temple prostitute. No one had ever been allowed to work among them. The discovery of this system was like a sword in Amy's missionary soul. Something must be done. Someone must find a way somehow to touch these women for God. Listen to a section that describes the Starry Cluster's encounter with a group of women who were prisoners in the village of Vishnu's heaven. The band visited the village of Vishnu's heaven where there was a fort which no woman had ever been allowed to leave. Men went in and out, as did a few untouchable servant women, but the women of the fort were prisoners. Once, it was said, a little girl of four had had the audacity to look out the door in the high mud wall. She was killed at once. Amy and her Indian sisters went to view the wall and to pray that it might somehow be breached. Along came a man who offered to escort them inside. They were given a few minutes to speak to the women of one of the houses. What hope had such women? No words of mine can give you any idea of the awful difficulties surrounding any Hindu or Mohammedan girl or woman who dares to take a stand. It is terrible for the men and boys, but infinitely more so for the women. Things no pen could write, at least mine could not, go on behind those prison walls. They are utterly in the power of ruthless relatives. Nothing but a miracle can bring them out. A girl who had shown an interest in Christianity was murdered. A boy was drugged, his intellect ruined for life. Because of bribery, the police were often on the side of the family in whatever measures they chose to take. Anyone who wanted to follow Christ had to leave all in order to do so. Now with her Indian name, Amal, Amy encouraged the girls under her care to strive to live independently from her so that they could lean completely on the Lord. This was a lot to ask because other than Amy, these girls were desolate, completely shunned by their families. Often she ministered to the professing Christians, but they said the kind of Christianity she presented would cost too much. She herself had to count the cost when the dear old man asked her to come back. It broke her heart to tell him that she couldn't. He came to the point of understanding and supported her sacrifice. He passed away in 1905. Charles Rainius established Donover in 1827. He was the first to promote education of women. He established Christian societies for charitable purposes and assembled the people of every Christian village for morning and evening prayer. He was one of the ablest, most clear-sighted, practical, and zealous missionaries India has ever seen. Donover was one of the villages where Amy and the Starry Cluster camped roughly 62 years after Rainius had arrived. He passed away in 1838. When Amy and Starry arrived, there were only nominal Christians there. 
When they left Donover, they went to Penevele. They were burdened for the Divadasis. Women, sometimes bought as infants from their mothers, who served in the temples. Of course, having deviated from 3rd century A.D. practices, this service involved prostitution. The band longed to reach over the proverbial wall, but it proved nigh unto impossible. Their prayer was to he to whom no wall is an obstacle. On March 6th, a strange thing took place. Prina was a child of seven who lived in the temple house. Her father was dead. Her mother had been persuaded to devote her to the gods. Once she had managed to slip out and return to her mother, a twenty-mile walk to Tutukorin, one of the Sodoms of the province. The temple women traced her, and the mother, threatened with the wrath of the gods, tore the child's arms from around her neck and gave her back to them. They branded her hands with hot irons, effectively burning into her young mind the heinousness of her crime. She had run away from a sacred calling. One day, Prina overheard a conversation about tying her to the god. She imagined being bound with ropes to the idol in the dark recesses of the temple. Anything would be preferable to that, so she resolved to escape, no matter what the cost. Like the other little girls, she was under constant surveillance. She could think of only one way out. In desperation, she went to the idol, threw herself down before it, and prayed that she might die. On that same evening that Amy's bandy reached the bungalow in Panevale, God sent an angel to the temple house, so Amy interpreted it. If he could send an angel to the prison in Jerusalem to deliver the apostle Peter, why not to a temple house in an Indian village to deliver a little girl? Amy wrote that the angel simply took her by the hand, led her out across a stream through the woods. There seemed no other possible explanation for her having eluded the all-seeing eyes and finding her way to safety. Prina's version was that she had heard the temple women call Amy the child-stealing Amal, hoping to frighten her. The child made up her mind instead that that was the very Amal she wanted to find. The late afternoon of March 6 was the time she chose. Was it God's angel who chose, or perhaps both? For God works often through human choices. A Christian woman named Servant of Jesus came upon the very small and desolate mite with tumbled hair and troubled eyes standing in front of the church in Panevale. It was late, so instead of taking the child back where she belonged, the woman kept her for the night, intending to return her the next morning. But Prina insisted that she wanted to go to the child-stealing Amal. Early the next morning, Amy was having her chota on the veranda, when Servant of Jesus, looking astonished, suddenly appeared with Prina. She did not know about the angel, I expect, and she could not understand it at all. The child ran straight to the white lady, climbed into her lap, and began to chatter away. My name is Pearl Ice, and I want to stay here always. I have come to stay. Prina's memory years later of her precious Ama was of her taking her into her lap and kissing her. I thought, my mother used to put me on her lap and kiss me. Who is this person who kisses me like my mother? From that day she became my mother, body and soul. If it had not been late afternoon when Servant of Jesus found Prina, she would have taken her back at once to the temple house. If the band had not arrived at the bungalow that night, there would have been no one to take her to. If Prina had succeeded in making her escape earlier, Amy would have been fifty miles away. Surely all this was a wonder of providential timing. Slowly they grew to know the child and delight in her. We watched her wonderingly. She was perfectly at home with us. She ran out, gathered leaves and flowers, and came back with them. These were carefully arranged in rows on the floor, then another expedition, and in again with three pebbles for hearthstones, a shell for a cooking pot, bits of straw for firewood, a stick for a match, and sand for rice. She went through all the minutiae of Tamil cookery with the greatest seriousness. Then we, together with her doll, were invited to partake. The little thing walked straight into our hearts, and we felt we would risk anything to keep her. Prina was followed, of course. The temple women came to the bungalow. Crowds gathered. There was an enormous fuss. Prina would not go with them, and Amy would not force her. Amy dared not go near the child, then lest they think she had some power to bewitch her. Arulai, 
One of the band took her away out of sight, and the child clung to her and sobbed, imploring her not to let them take her. Their punishments were cruel. Prina had scars to prove it. Erelai managed to soothe her and took her back to the angry crowd. The little girl stood bravely before them all. Would she go with them? I won't, was her answer. And they went off, declaring that they would write to her mother who had given her to them. This was the beginning of Amy and her group rescuing children who were being trafficked. Because this topic is a heartbreaking reality in our world today, I looked up some statistics. In 2021, according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, of the 25,000 children reported missing who had run away, one in six were likely sex trafficking victims. 19% of the children who ran from the care of social services and were reported missing in 2020 were likely victims of child sex trafficking. God saved these children from this modern-day slavery. Positively, Amy had such an impact on Prina that she was given a new title, Ama. It is an Indian term that means mother. For the rest of this episode, I will refer to her as Ama. By June of 1901, only three months after Prina's arrival, Amy had become Ama to four more little children. She struggled to figure out the balance of motherhood and evangelism. Typhoid became a problem. Erelai, or Star, became desperately ill with it. All journeys came to a halt while Alma and her helpers, for three anxious and grueling months, gave themselves to nursing. Praise the Lord, Erelai recovered. Alma came to the realization that mothering is a full-time job and that her family needed a home. Through certain circumstances that I'll skip over for sake of time, the family came to permanently live in Donover. It is there that Amma lived out the rest of her days, 50 years to be exact. Upon her death, she had been Amma to over 1,000 children. Her desire was to always point them to the gospel and to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Of course, she did not do this alone. Her team grew bigger and bigger over the years with the expectation that serving the Donover Fellowship would be sacrificial and all-consuming. Only heaven will be able to tell how many people came to saving faith because of the life of Amma. I hope I'm near her when the crowns of rejoicing are given out. Oh, to watch her lay them at the feet of her king whom she loved with all of her heart. For further exploration of the Donover Fellowship, which is still thriving today, go to www.donoverfellowship.org. Their doctrinal position is not clear to me, but the pictures of the rescued and educated look vibrant. Thank you.